You are now listening to Macrodose. Hello and welcome to Macrodose, a podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Each Wednesday morning, we bring you the key stories making the news and the analysis you need to make sense of them. On today's episode, we'll be taking a look at, first, two bits of news that show how the world economy is being reshaped in front of us. Second, an account of how the era of the United States economic hegemony might be coming to an end. And finally, one of the world's leading economists has some big demands on tackling wealth inequality. Two pieces of news in the last week pointed to some deep, fundamental shifts in how the global economy is organised. First, Saudi Arabia let it be known that it was open to selling oil in a currency other than dollars. As the world's largest crude oil exporter and, until recently, a linchpin of US strategy in the Middle East, this is big news. It would mean the world's first and second largest oil exporters, Saudi and Russia, would no longer be looking to trade that oil solely in dollars. This news comes on top of a recent trend which has seen Saudi developing increasingly close ties with China, where demand for oil is continuing to rise with economic growth. Global oil demand in general is expected to reach an all-time high this year, as China reopens in particular. Second, there was the announcement by Brazil and Argentina that they too would be looking to set up a new currency for trade, perhaps be called the Sur. There have been moves like this before by the two countries, but they have tended to flounder on political grounds with strong opposition from both countries' central banks. Now, with left-leaning and independent-minded governments in both countries, there is a greater willingness to try and establish a new currency separated from the dollar system. Early reports indicate that it would be a foreign trade-only instrument to start with, and both countries recognise the complications involved. But with other South American countries invited to join, it could, in theory, over time, start to function as an alternative to the dollar. Put these two items together and they feed into a general pattern where major economies are starting to back out of the dollar-dominated global system. Since the end of the Cold War, we've all lived in a world where the US economy, and with it the dollar, are overwhelmingly important. That system has wobbled on occasion, arguably most dramatically in the 2008 global financial crisis. Although if you read Adam Tooze's account of that crisis, crashed, you'll find an argument that the 2008 crisis demonstrated the power of the United States, which was eventually able to stabilise the rest of the global economy. But the years since have seen a steady erosion of US power, as other economies, led by China, have grown fast and some close allies, like Britain, have fallen behind. Covid also dramatically jolted the whole system, and we're still very much living with the virus and its consequences. Depending on how these new threats to the dollar evolve in the coming years, these two announcements could mark the start of a major shift in the balance of global power, and the slow erosion of US's economic hegemony, which we've all lived under for the best part of the last century. Our second story today is an extension of that same argument, a detailed claim that this unipolar world we live in is now coming to an end. Zoltan Pozar, who is Director of Global Strategy for Credit Suisse, the giant Swiss bank, has been making the case for the emergence of what he calls Bretton Woods 3 and has been writing about this in the Financial Times earlier this week. Bretton Woods 3 is referring to the idea that since the end of the Second World War, the world has passed through three different international monetary systems – 
The first was designed at the Bretton Woods Conference in the US in 1944, where the Allied powers tried to lay down the ground rules for how the post-war international monetary system would work. Their great fear at the time was the need to involve a, a second Great Depression and the kind of breakdown of international cooperation that you saw all around the globe in the 1930s. After some debate, this conference ended up establishing the World Bank Group and the International Monetary Fund, both headquartered in Washington. The agreement also pegged all the other major currencies to the dollar, which was in turn guaranteed by the US government to be exchanged at a fixed rate for gold, but only via the dollar. So naturally, this gave the US a position of significant power over the new global monetary system. But since the US emerged from the war as the most powerful economy on the planet, it could call the shots in how the world was to operate, and it did. Now, when the system broke down in the crisis of the late 60s and into the 70s, it collapsed into a world of mostly floating exchange rates. In other words, there was no guarantee anywhere that any particular currency could be exchanged for gold or some other valuable commodity like silver, which has been used in the past. People sometimes call this a fiat currency system. And despite some early predictions, this new fiat currency system ended up acting to once again reinforce US economic power in the world. This was because, as globalisation took hold, global flows of finance expanded enormously alongside global trade. Most of this trade took place in dollars, especially for key core commodities for the world economy like oil. And likewise, the majority of financial transactions were also conducted in dollars. So this gave the US a huge capacity to borrow from the rest of the world, since it could always ultimately repay in valuable, highly in-demand dollars. US governments mercilessly exploited that capacity, running huge deficits from Ronald Reagan onwards. Reagan used the borrowing to fund the Second Cold War, as it was called, ramping up military spending in an effort to defeat the Soviet Union. George W. Bush and Donald Trump did essentially the same thing, minus the Cold War. But at the same time, US consumers and businesses also ran up huge debts to the rest of the world, notably in China and East Asia. In effect, households and consumers would borrow money and then use these borrowings to buy goods from China and East Asia, which fueled economic growth there and reinforced the process of globalisation. So, somewhat controversially, by the early 2000s, this system looked so stable that at least some economists were starting to call it Bretton Woods too. They meant it was a new, very secure way to organise the world economy, again based around the dollar, but this time supporting debt-funded growth. So it's a historical analogy rather than a sort of official title. There was no actual international agreement on this system. It, it developed organically, with lots of countries making their own decisions about it, rather than all coming together to agree. Some countries did, by themselves, try to implement fixed exchange rates, with many East Asian and South American countries choosing to link their own currencies to the dollar. And a few countries, typically in South America, actually chose to dollarize entirely, using the dollar in place of a domestic currency. Obviously, this setup didn't actually last that long. The whole system blew up in the financial crisis of 2008, which was triggered by effectively excessive lending in the US. But here's the crucial detail. In the years of relative financial stability prior to this, the US had been putting in place a vast system of swap lines, which are direct lines from the Federal Reserve, the US central bank, to supply very cheap dollars to essentially politically preferred countries in the event of a crisis. 
So the swap line would act as, as a sort of special bailout for troubled economies. If there was a, a crash or a crisis that happened and your banks and financial institutions needed lots of dollars quickly, you as a central bank could run off to the Federal Reserve and get those dollars as fast as possible and as cheap as possible. So, for instance, the Bank of England made use of its swap line during the 2008 crisis, in effect organising another bailout for the UK financial system. Now, this gives the US Federal Reserve huge power. If you can choose to rescue someone or not choose to rescue someone, you have a real power over them. This is a point that Adam Tooze makes in his book, Crashed. What Posner and some others have argued is that 15 years later, the world is now entering a new period, Bretton Woods III. Again, it's an analogy. There's no big overarching international agreement, nor is any country so powerful that they could enforce such an agreement. I mean, in 1945, the US accounted for about half the world's industrial production. It's a fraction uh, of that figure now. What's happened instead, Pojar claims, is that the shocks of the last few years, and especially the Russian invasion of Ukraine, have given countries around the world a heavy incentive to get out of the dollar system. When Russia invaded, the US and its closest allies immediately used the dollar system to impose sanctions on the Russian economy, including its central bank. This has forced Russia out of trading so much in dollars, since the system is somewhat blocked, it can't really access it properly, and into using other currencies like China's renminbi. But every other country can see that if they try to operate in dollars, they're also exposed to that kind of US power. So it gives them an incentive to try and get out of using the dollars. Pozar says this is a profound shock to the world economy. Instead of the dollar acting as a completely dominant form of world money, which organises the rest of the system, we may now start to see alternative competing currencies with their own claims to value in the system. He argues the renminbi is on the way to becoming such a currency, with its value determined on the basis of commodities, just like the very first Bretton Woods regime, which ultimately depended, as I said, on the dollar being valued in relation to gold. Now, that's a pretty bold claim for him to make. The dollar still accounts for about 50% of global trade, and whilst the renminbi is creeping its share upwards, it's still only using barely 2% of global transactions. The US is still the world's largest economy, carries huge soft power around the world, so think Hollywood or the music industry, and is the world's largest military spender by some distance. But it's the smaller changes that can start to matter. In a fragile, crisis-prone system, these small changes at the margins can start to provoke big shifts elsewhere. Alongside this, China has been creating vast new initiatives for a different kind of international trade organisation of the world. So think the Belt and Road Initiative, linking up Chinese trade through rail and sea lanes to Europe and Africa, or attempts to open up new sea lanes in cooperation with Russia in the Arctic, or China establishing its own renminbi swap lines to its own politically preferred countries. This adds up to a major set of challenges to the dominance of the US in the global economy. India, meanwhile, has also started trading in rupees with Russia and China. Zoltan Pojar, in a recent piece for Financial Times, reckons central bank digital currencies, new digital money directly issued by the central banks, are also part of the pattern here. So in other words, the unipolar world that we've lived in since the end of the Cold War looks like, on this argument, it is coming to an end. That we now live in an era of war in Europe, rising tensions across the globe, and of course the unending grind of climate change bringing with it resource depletion and mass extinction. Changes in global economic leadership historically have taken place before. Genoa gave way to Holland in the 16th century. Holland gave way to Britain in the 18th. Britain gave way to the US in the 20th. But their historically periods, as this movement and shift in the balance of power takes place, of enormous instability. In this transitional period, 
We are clearly moving towards a more multipolar world, but the exact patterns of how and when that is going to play out, as always, remains to be seen. Picking up on the same theme, I wanted in the last story to take a look at what happens with some of these people who do extremely well out of those periods of instability. Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize winning economist and former head of the World Bank, has this week been arguing for dramatic increases in taxes on the super rich. People may have seen last week the report from Oxfam that suggests the world's richest 1% have taken two-thirds of the increase in global wealth since the start of the pandemic. Some wobbles last year notwithstanding. Covid has basically been very good for them. And whilst we don't have the figures as yet, it wouldn't be surprising if the soaring prices of basic goods over the last year, so oil, gas, food, have been extremely beneficial for at least some of the world's wealthy. Tech billionaires like Elon Musk are rather tragically missing out on this bonanza. Professor Stiglitz reckons a 70% top rate of income tax applied globally would be a good level to stick to, alongside what he calls a very reasonable 2% or so annual tax on accumulated wealth. For reference, the current top income tax rate in the UK is 45% and other large economies tend around that sort of level. 70% is a significant increase from where we are now. It's good to hear these arguments being made by people with impeccable mainstream economics reputations. It helps shift the Overton window, this idea that there is an acceptable boundary of discourse that we are allowed to take place in. People raising ideas like this starts to shift what is considered acceptable and possible. Stiglitz presumably wants a global tax, like the one he's talking about, to reduce the incentive for people to try and move countries. But I tend to think this is less of a problem than is sometimes suggested. First, there is good evidence from Gabriel Zuckman showing that very wealthy people are much less mobile than we think, tending to stay in the countries they know and work in, even when taxes go up. The reason is fairly simple. First, they actually like it in these places, and second, perhaps more decisively, uh, a major part of their wealth and their income will actually rely on the kinds of social and political connections that people develop in the specific countries where they live and do business. If you move, you lose those connections, you lose the source of your wealth and your income. But there's another argument which gets made sometimes, and I think it has some weight to it, which is to simply say, so what? You sometimes hear the claim that in Britain that if we tax rich people too much, they'll up sticks and go elsewhere. But looking at the state of the country, can we really say that anyone in charge of anything is up to the mark? It'd be good if a few seat warmers and boardroom incompetents and others hangers-on decide to move out of the way. Let's clear out some of the deadwood, create some space for a younger generation. Now, that's an impeccably pro-capitalist argument for higher taxes, if you're looking for one and want to take home at the end of the day's show. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.